This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to another edition of The Minefield. Try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life uh, on this show and the dilemmas and so forth, such, sorry, the dilemmas and so forth that we're discussing today don't come much more modern than this. I would say today we're discussing something that is quintessentially descriptive of our modern condition and the thorny problems that arise in it. Well, Lidl is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host as we venture out today. Uh, I, um... I don't really know what we're talking about today. Let's maybe I'll just say it really bluntly up yep. front. We're talking basically about Facebook. Mm. Um, and we're doing that in the context of something that's gathered international attention, um, which is the Australian government's attempts to regulate Facebook, make it pay for news um, content, and the way Facebook's responded to that. Deals are being struck. All kinds of things are happening around us as we do this. Um, so that's broadly what we're talking about, but partly because it's such a complex thing and I, and I've kind of gestured towards so definitive of our contemporary condition as far as, you know, our public lives and the communicative aspects of our lives is concerned. I actually don't know where to begin here, Scott, Mm. because there's so many lines of attack. There are so many angles and there are so many bits of this that you could choose um, to say are the the most important ones to, to attack. So I'm going to kind of leave it to you and then I'll follow. That's terrifying. Well, look, I'll, yeah. I'll say that this is such a complex issue. By my count, this is the seventh time in the last three years that we've returned to this topic. Uh, if people want to go to our uh, Minefield uh, website, we do not have a Facebook page. We will not have a Facebook page. We will never have a Facebook page. If you go to RN, the Minefield, uh, we've included a list of the other times that we've tried to do something with this topic. We've had some wonderful guests on in the past. We've got a wonderful guest today. But the topic is a tough one. Let, let me see if I can't put it this way, Waleed. Um, uh, mm. I, I do want us to get to the economics of this a little bit later. I mean, is it right, for instance, that the Australian government should be making Facebook and Google, but we're primarily focused on Facebook. Is it really right that the government should be making them pay for content that we post? And by we, I mean uh, media organizations that we post on their platform. Is Mm. there a I think there's a moral question behind that that we need to address that it seems to me nobody has been addressing over the last week. Look, here's here's where I think we are. We've had a window between Thursday last week, the 18th of February, and roughly Tuesday this week when news content was unshareable, unpostable, unpublishable, unreadable on Facebook. Uh, it wasn't news- it glorious? Uh, yes. <laughs> Sorry, I've jumped ahead. Go on. Um, so it was impossible to share links to news content in Australia from Australian sites, and it was impossible to read or share news content news content from overseas on Australian Facebook sites. Um, effectively, over the course of roughly five days, news was deleted from Facebook in Australia. Uh, that move was was interesting. It is worth saying that for the last three months, Facebook has been warning that this would happen. It's also equally true to say that the fact that they took this particular step uh, and the fact they did it in the ham-fisted, clumsy, sweeping, dragnet-like approach that they did, I mean, the number of sites that were caught up in that cleanse and purge from domestic violence hotlines through to the the Bureau of Meteorology, uh, through to government websites, uh, through to uh, local mums groups in northern Sydney. I mean, the sheer fact that this huge sweep of, let's call them civic society and public-oriented Uh, uh, sites uh, or groups were taken off Facebook in this kind of cleanse and purge uh, over the last uh, week. I mean, that itself tells us something, I think, pretty interesting. And that has been the thing that that raised temperatures uh, far more than I expected that they would. A lot of people have been really put out by that, Uh, not just annoyed by Facebook. And I think one of the reasons that the Australian government this week was so quickly to try to broker some kind of accommodation, some sort of deal with Facebook, is because how quickly, I believe, they feared they would go from being the chest-beating, 
uh, defiant middle power government that stood up to the global juggernaut, how quickly they would go from being subjects of admiration or objects of admiration to being the bad guys that are preventing us from doing what we want to do and seeing what we want to see on Facebook. Um, There is something else here, however, that's going on. This is a window of time where we had a brief reprieve from the tyranny of the pragmatic. Uh, What I mean by that is I don't know many people who work in the media and who aren't exasperated by Facebook, who aren't deeply concerned if they've thought about it for a moment, about what Facebook's ubiquity, about the way that it places good content cheek by jowl with rotten content, the way that Facebook uh, circulates our content, yes, to unimaginably large audiences, but being very aware of the price that that exacts on the kind of content that we can produce, the type of content that is permitted to quote-unquote go viral on Facebook. I don't know many people in the media that aren't in their weaker moments or their stronger moments exasperated by that. And yet, as soon as you speak to them about that, it's very quickly followed up by, I'm sure you would have seen this, Waleed, a kind of shrug. But this is just the world that we live in. You've got to go where the audience is. This is the way things are. If you're in the news media, you have to accommodate Facebook. Facebook is our form of global distribution. We've had over the last week a brief reprieve from the tyranny of pragmatism. And I think over the last week, we've given ourselves a degree of permission to begin asking the normative questions. Should we have ceded this kind of power to Facebook in the first place? Should we have made a private, relentlessly, ruthlessly for-profit international company one of the most lucrative and profitable there has ever been in the history of the world, should we have made this private company our de facto public messaging board? Should we really have ceded so much of our distributional requirements, if we are in the news media, to a private corporation like Facebook? Should we really have turned certain essential government services of information, of keeping people well-informed, keeping people abreast? Should we really have ceded these things to a private company. My concern, Waleed, is that now that this window is rapidly closing, now that we're right on the brink of returning to business as usual, uh, we are going to give our before we give ourselves wholeheartedly to the fa- to the Faustian pact that the media struck with Facebook uh, just over ten years ago. Before we do that. I think we need to linger a little bit longer with some of these normative questions, because if we forget too quickly the normative questions we've been able to ask ourselves over this period, should we really have struck this deal with Facebook the way that we do? Are our hands really clean in this exchange? Uh, Then I think we are simply plunging in headlong to overt complicity. Uh, And by we here again, I mean the news media, overt complicity in a, a system that is corroding the democratic conditions of our common life. Okay, so I'm attracted to what I think you're saying, but I want you to explain what the alternative course of action would have looked like. Okay, I'll make two simple points, hopefully simple points. Uh, The first thing, uh, in 1906, there was a wonderful and for me a kind of life-changing essay that was written by William James, who was himself not exactly a pacifist, but he was greatly, greatly concerned by the conventional uh, cultural wisdom that saw war as just part of what it means to be a civilization. Uh, He was worried by what would happen if war were abolished. He was worried that societies would hand themselves over to what he described as softness and unmanliness. I mean, he did use, unfortunately, that kind of masculine language. Uh, But he said, nonetheless, we do have to find a way of discovering and cultivating what he described as the moral equivalent of war. We need to find a way of inculcating and reproducing the virtues that training for war produces 
and yet without the immense moral costs and devastations. It seems to me that over the last week, there have been in certain places in public life and in the media and among certain politicians, a kind of realization, if we want there to be a widely accessible public messaging board, if we want to have ways of communicating people and giving accurate information uh, that is central to our democratic life for the ability to, for us to be able to be moral and democratic agents, then we do need something like a public message board. We do need ways of getting in contact with vast numbers of people all at once or relatively speaking, all at once. Uh, we need to find, to put it bluntly, a moral equivalent to Facebook. At the moment, there is no moral equivalent to Facebook, and I do not see our conspiracy with Facebook as being a moral compromise. Uh, it is debauching. It is corrupting us all. The other thing that I would say, Willie— Sorry, you do not see it as being a moral compromise. No, it is not a moral compromise. It is not a moral compromise. No. Uh, what is it? Uh, it, is, it is a form of mutually impoverishing— Oh, civic by we, okay, sorry, I misunderstood. I thought you said it was. I thought you meant it wasn't morally compromising. No, no, no. It is highly morally compromised. Right. It's not a compromise that's moral. Is yes, what precisely. Right. right. Okay. Uh, the the other form of questioning that I think of serious questioning that the last week has elicited from us is you realize, Willie, twelve years ago, the media, uh, um, the media outsourced the distribution of its product. Uh, once upon a time, uh, papers, I mean, actual physical papers and printing presses and the trucks that deliver them to news agents and to people's houses, those were our forms of distribution. Uh, the media has outsourced its distributional model to Facebook, effectively. And we've yeah, seen but, that. But, but that's the point you've made. I'm just trying to figure out what the alternative would have been. Um, the alternative would have been not hopping in bed with a private for, for-profit company. So no, no distribution in the digital age that was any different? Uh, what do you mean? Well, as you say, it, the media had its modes of distribution and they were via, you know, kids on bikes delivering newspapers or... Um, or websites, sets, or, or websites. Or their own websites, yeah, yeah, which increasingly people were abandoning. Yes, uh, are you saying that's what should have remained? That uh, it was simply a matter of resisting the siren call of this other form of distribution? Yes. Look, j just think about it this way. Let, let me see if I can frame the moral compromise that we've made in these terms. Yeah. Facebook does not care about the quality of the content that it posts. Yes. It has certain... Well, sort of. Yes, there sort of. we've been discover, discovering that there are limit cases, yes. No, but more than that, Facebook did approach news organisations asking them, that are inviting them to post. Yes. And it did that, I suspect, not merely because it wanted more content, irrespective of the kind of content, but that it knew that having that sort of stuff on its platform and circulating around, being shared was to its benefit, that it would somehow enhance its brand and raise um, the quality of the product, whatever that product is, that Facebook were offering. So I don't think it was totally indiscriminate in that way. I think it saw the benefit in, for want of a better term, credible information existing. It may not have cared about incredible information also circulating, but it wanted the credible information there. And that means something. Uh, I haven't yet figured out what the full implications of that are. So I guess what I'm saying is there's a two-way street here. There's a, there's a tango going on in that Facebook was inviting this onto its platform because it felt it needed it or at least could benefit from it. And the news organisations were happy to go along because it felt it benefited from the distribution. You're right to point out to the inherent problem in outsourcing your distribution to a third party that doesn't really care about or abide by democratic norms or, you know, isn't held to any kinds of journalistic values and so on and consistently wants to exempt itself from any regulation that would be applied to a publisher and not describe itself in those terms, even though in so many ways it is that. In some ways, that's what we're seeing now is the fight over whether or not it's a publisher. Right? Same with... Google. Mm. 
Um, and the presence of algorithms complicates that because that's, if you like, kind of like your editorial process, an algorithm. That's kind of what's happening. So there was a two-way mechanism going on. I'm, I agree with what you're saying. I just think it's not quite full enough. I feel like you're making Facebook more or less just passive recipients who just cream off profit as a result rather than someone that had an active interest in trying to cultivate this as well. No, look, they had an active interest. That's certainly right. They solicited the content. That's right. Part of that is the normalization of Facebook as a kind of quasi-public private service. Um, Mm. So yes, that's exactly right. It did have ambitions to be a kind of global public square, a kind of global vendor or purveyor of information that, quote unquote, you are interested in. But I think uh, its rationale for doing that wasn't simply giving Facebook a degree of normality or officialdom that it wouldn't otherwise have had. But it's also the same reason. We've talked on the show uh, before, Waleed, about the tabloidization of the media. Uh, You go to a website, a a serious website, like, say, the ABC or The Guardian or New York Times, and the range of topics or stories that will be featured there now – would have been virtually unimaginable 15, 20 years ago. Uh, um, The point is, the more you publish, the more range you publish from the high to the low, from the zany to the serious, the more you publish, the more you're likely to gather in audiences of all kind. And the hope then is, okay, you you may well have gone to the website because you want to read more about a brown a king brown snake laying eggs in a child's closet in Townsville, and you might end up staying in order to read the latest uh, developments in whatever scandal is overtaking Canberra at this particular moment. Of course, in disaggregated in a in a disaggregated media age where those topics though on the same page no longer really live side by side but float as independent stories, I'm not sure that that particular model works any longer. But the point for me, Waleed, is this. Um, right back in the 1950s, there's this wonderful essay by a fine media critic and literary critic named Dwight MacDonald where he worried about the emergence of these kind of um, – these showcase magazines, uh, the one that he – particularly pointed out was Life magazine, which might have, for instance, an article that reproduced six Rembrandts in the middle. And then adjoining that article, you'd read about a roller skating horse. This is the example that he gives, a roller skating mm. horse that was discovered in Oklahoma. You read that and you think, wow, you know, the, the roller skating horse in Oklahoma is the price that you pay for being able to have in your possession these beautiful reproduction of six Rembrandts. But he says the effect of it, after you have the beautiful and the zany living side by side is, wow, Rembrandt and the roller skating horse sure are talented, aren't they? Um, his, his, di- <laughs> his diagnosis his diagnosis is that what this kind of showcase media where you have the zany and the serious, the true, the trivial, and the manufactured all jostling side by side is it tends to lead to the debasement of all of them. He, pro- he called this the process of homogenization, where instead of this thick, gorgeous layer of cream resting on top of milk, it's boiled and the little globule of cream end up permeating the lot. Everything, everything in this media age ends up having roughly the same status as yet one more ornament, yet one more lure to try to get readers' attention, to try to get them to stay on the site and to live with it. So when I say that Facebook doesn't care about the content that it posts, it cares about the lures that it affixes to try to get people to uh, to uh, read the site, to log in, to stay in uh, their platform as long as humanly possible. And because of that, there's a kind of amoral promiscuity surrounding its use of content. And media organizations that have been happy to live with that promiscuousness, to live with the fact that it's excellent, well-researched, fact-based Uh, material is living side by side with conspiratorial nonsense and and something that's purely manufactured, something that's completely trivial. And I think it's that Faustian bargain, the, the sacrifice that needs to be paid, that needs to be made in order for our content to achieve unimaginably large audiences. That, I think, is the moral compromise that never should have been made in the first yeah, place. I, I think you're pointing to a genuine problem. I'm just not sure that's the Facebook problem. I think that you, you can see that zany next to the 
the worthy just by going to a news website. You don't need Facebook's involvement in that. Yes, but, but if, Wally, this, if, is, this is how Facebook has, I think, changed news websites themselves. We, maybe, but, but no, 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 no. I'm, I'm not sure about that. Facebook may have changed the way in, like, consumer tastes, for want of a better phrase. It may have changed, and the internet generally, right? It, it, it privileges those kinds of things that are easily digestible, that you can, and, and quite emotive, and so, so that you can just hook in that way. It privileges that. If the news organisations hadn't thrown their lot in with Facebook as a distribution centre, that still happens. And the same person who is using Facebook for non-news goes to the news website and has that same habit of mind, and probably still, if you want to attract them to your page and you want them to click on things, you're probably still indulging in that juxtaposition of the zany and the worthy. You, you pro- you're still doing that. So in other words, I don't think that's a... I think it's a real problem. I don't think that's a Facebook problem. I think we're looking at the wrong thing there. I think the Facebook problem is the presence of the algorithm that effectively sorts your news content into all these filter bubbles. Google does a similar thing, although in a slightly different way. But that's, it, it seems to me, the problem. I don't mind the zany living alongside the worthy because that happens in, that happens in publications pre-internet, right? But what, would, what would, was different was you knew the zany ones were at the back or somewhere in the middle and the worthy ones were at the front. And the great thing about the newspaper was as you turned the page, you would see a story you otherwise wouldn't have seen and that you're not going to seek out. And then online, you probably wouldn't click on and you might read it. What Facebook does is it means that that article probably doesn't appear to you, the one that you wouldn't have read, probably doesn't appear to you because the algorithms at work deliver customized content to you. That I think is the real problem. And that's the moral price. I think we're both saying there's a moral price, but that's the moral price that we're paying, I think, democratically. Well, I, I don't disagree with that at all. The fact that populations are not seeing the same information, I think that is catastrophically bad. I'm not even saying, by the way, that the zany living alongside the worthy uh, is the big moral problem here. What I'm saying is the true living next to, next to the trivial or the blatantly false and self-interested. I'm yes. saying and, – and living side by side indiscriminately – Yes, which is why I felt like I was the only person in the world that was delighted to see news taken from, yes. from Facebook. <laughs> so I was like, great. I think this is the very worst mechanism for the delivery of news. Exactly. And if people are going to have to get their news by going to a website, like a news website, great. And if that means fewer people engage with news, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing if the way in which you get them more to engage is via this mechanism. Because I think it's a catastrophic mechanism. I think that's, a, that's right. Just before we bring in our guest, one last final thing. The other, of course, big part of the moral price that had to be paid was the expectation of unimaginably large audiences. In other words, as mm. soon as people begin, as soon as news corporations begin getting a taste of, oh my God, 1.4 million people read that, that then becomes a kind of new bar, a new expectation. And then, pr- then material becomes produced that then can reach that particular bar. So when you have that degree of enormousness yeah. of audience, it cannot help but affect the editorial and the content decisions. That's uh, in, the feedback loop. That's yes. exactly right. Yes, yes. But I think what it means is all of this discussion that the government's had about the policy and trying to get Facebook to pay for news and so on, I feel like, and maybe we explore this later in the show, maybe we don't get to it, but that was built on a misconception of the problem. That's right. The problem wasn't Facebook was stealing content. Media organisations were willingly giving it up. That's right. right? They were hoping for that. The, the problem isn't that at all. It's not a theft issue. The problem is the way in which the public conversation has been so comprehensively distorted by Facebook and others' effect on it and the way that journalism now has no viable business model because what Facebook does offer that the media hasn't is a much, much better advertising product. Mm. That's what it's done. And if you want to save journalism, really what you do is you tax those tech companies more as tax and you have a fund and you direct it towards journalism. Precisely right. But that's not what was on off. Anyway, Mm. um, you're listening to The Minefield. Thank you for doing so. You might be listening to the show as a radio program on RN, but you can also catch it as a podcast anytime, wherever you subscribe to podcasts, or you can go to the ABC Listen app and uh, listen to it at your leisure.
we have a guest, Scott. I would love you to tell us who it is. We do indeed. Belinda Barnett, a senior lecturer in media and communications at Swinburne University of Technology in Melbourne. Belinda, we have kept you waiting way too long because we couldn't quite contain our grumpiness. My apologies. Thank you so much for coming on The Minefield. That's fine. It was an interesting discussion to listen to. So let's begin, if you don't mind, with the question or with the point that Waleed made just before we introduced you. Is the idea of, okay, Facebook is using, uh, if, if you listen to language sometimes, it almost sounds like they're stealing material and using it to profit from news organizations that the form of legislation that has been that has been produced and looks to pass will essentially get them to pay for material that they are using is it better to think of this as facebook has wrought unimaginable damage on the moral conditions of democratic life this the, some kind of payment into a public journalism fund to try to offset to try to counterbalance the devastation that they've wrought is the least that they can do in order to try to undo or counterbalance some of the damage uh, that has been inflicted. is uh, I realize that's a tough sell, but is that morally, politically speaking, a better way of thinking about this? Well, yes, that's how the, the ACCC originally pitched this suite of changes that has led to the legislation, that it's evening up the balance again, as it were, that the balance has been tipped in the favour of the platforms. Uh, they have this unimaginable gravitational pull and size and media outlets are, are too small to negotiate with these giants. So the legislation is intended to even it up. I don't think we can get out of this Faustian pact uh, that you were talking about before and that will continue on pretty much forever. But it will, in a sense, um, allow media platforms to ask for payment for this content that uh, Facebook's making money out of. One of the one of the criticisms of the legislation is that, and and some of this I accept, is actually have been I think bad faith, maybe interested criticisms. But it's that media organisations aren't being forced to publish their content on Facebook. And so isn't it kind of like we are going to get truck drivers to deliver our papers and to pay us for the ability to deliver our papers just because they might have a billboard or some kind of advert on the side of the truck that's doing the delivery? Is there is there a kind of bad faith double dipping it's, that's involved here? Right. I, I know the platforms themselves are saying that, implying that, that it's really the news outlet's choice and that, and that they are making money from the experience. But really, if we go back to this concept of the Faustian bargain, it's not really a Faustian bargain because news outlets never really had a choice. There was no conscious moment where they decided to become reliant on Facebook. Facebook has become such a monopoly that really media organisations have no choice but to distribute on this platform, but to be part of this platform. But Scott's point is that they did have a choice. I mean, the, the fact that they run their own Facebook pages and post their own content up and perhaps even make decisions about what they're going to publish on their websites and what they're going to put on their Facebook page on the basis of shareability, etc. I work within several media organisations. I've heard the phrase shareability a lot, right? That that is a conscious decision. That's saying we're throwing our lot in with this because, as Scott put it, we're chasing these unimaginably large audiences that are beyond any audience number that we could possibly have conceived in the pre-internet age. Right. But when I say they don't have a choice, I mean, if they decided not to be on the platform, they would be severely disadvantaged. It's like uh, the, the currency I'm talking about here is really data and audiences. But if you think about a normal currency cash money. If you say, I'm consciously going to make the decision not to use money, instead I'll give everyone gifts, right? You're putting yourself at a severe disadvantage when you're entering into a world that is based on that currency. So Facebook is so influential and has so much impact in the media world now that if you make a conscious decision not to be on the platform, you're putting your content at a disadvantage, yeah, but only if the industry doesn't act in a concerted way, right? 
So yeah, would have been yeah. entirely possible, would it not? And may- maybe the problem is the boiling frog problem, right? And media organisations weren't capable of recognising the implications of this until it was too late. But it would have been conceptually possible, at least, for all the big media companies to say, we're not going to do this. Let's get together and talk about what this means. We are not going down this road. And then you don't suffer any comparative disadvantage, do you? Yeah, that's right. But when have media organisations all decided to unanimously act together for... <laughs> well, no, no, but this is the point. They are now, right? They're, they're all uniting because they want Facebook to pay them. <laughs> they unite when they look at um, some counterterrorism legislation that they think is going to limit their reporting or not protect their sources. They're, they're very interested in scrutinising counterterrorism legislation when that happens rather than when just ordinary people are being thrown into prison without charge or whatever, right? I think they are capable of coming together and acting out of some kind of shared self-interest. The problem here seems to have been one of recognition, that they didn't recognise that, or they saw dollar signs that they just couldn't resist, or they saw falling dollar signs and just reached for any kind of safety life jacket they could. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, They certainly have acted in concert um, in supporting this legislation, but they did break ranks right at the end when Seven West went out and made a deal and Nine went out and made a deal. They were all originally going to dig their heels in and say, no, we need the code to be passed as it is. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. Scott? Um Look, these are these are two admittedly controversial questions, um, and I hope you don't mind. I'll do them sequentially. Uh, one of the things that you've raised, Belinda, and I think you've raised it in a more articulate and considered way that I've come across than I've come across elsewhere. You've raised real concerns about what happens to our already impoverished civic and democratic spaces if news content is deleted from Facebook? Doesn't this simply turn Facebook over into, you know, a kind of further indiscriminate cesspit of the personal, the trivial, the conspiratorial, the, 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 the factually baseless and so on? Um, is it really such a bad thing for there to be a hard and fast separation between news content that you really ought to lean into, that you really ought to be made to seek out instead of simply be offered up to you to stumble across in the middle of your feed where you're looking at, I don't know, Richmond's performance or, or, or what's happening in the, in the Premier League. Um, <laughs> to use two very Just to use examples. two very poignant. I, I mean, is it, is it really such a bad thing for there to be that separation in the same way that in newspapers and magazines and in, 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 in television opinion shows or news broadcasts, there were clear separations between the news content and the advertising content? I mean, surely one of the problems here is that advertising interests permeate everything on Facebook, whereas having that clear separation, this is where I go for news, this is where I go for other stuff. What what am I what am I failing to see? That that seems to me to be not a bad thing. Right, but uh, if if we don't mix the two together, then there's a risk that uh, a portion of Australia actually won't get any news at all. I mean, I guess it's a bit like mixing vegetables into the casserole. So you your family can't see them, if you actually completely extract the main source of factual, accurate content from Facebook, then there's a portion of the population who will simply not seek that content out. So you have uh, however many Australians with a news-less diet. Yeah, that's the bit I'm wondering, though, that, that I'm wondering about, Belinda. Is that a problem? I mean, because at the moment they're getting a news diet but in a way that's pap, like it's so distorted, so disfigured, just the mechanism of dealing, delivering it to them, that it, it doesn't strike me as facilitating a genuine engagement with news. And I wonder if we're better off just as a society in a situation where the people who are not actually interested in news are not interested in news and that's fine. But everybody knows that whatever's going to go around on Facebook is the opposite of that. That's a very good point. I guess if everybody started to become more aware that uh, what's on Facebook is not terribly accurate, perhaps they will learn to mistrust it a bit more. 
Or mm. even, I mean, it, it doesn't even have to be inaccurate. It can be what circulates is anecdotal. What circulates is limited and personal. And it might be something that stokes a degree of curiosity or interest, or it might even be something that incites a certain degree of emotion. But you're only two further clicks away from, okay, if I go to this site, there are going to be certain editorial protocols that surrounded the commissioning and the publication of this piece. So, so I'm, I'm not saying it, it needs to be this necessarily kind of Manichaean universe of the light and the dark. It can simply be the anecdotal, the personal, the curious versus, okay, this is what I need to do to look up something that's going to be factually accountable. Yeah, I, I think that's a valid point. It's just that we're, we're also not considering that a lot of the content on Facebook can be actually dangerous. Uh, and can encourage behaviours um, in people that are dangerous, whether that's COVID information that is put out by Pete Evans or, I don't know, people encouraging storming of the Capitol in the United States. If you are exposed to a, a lot of misinformation without the kind of the antidote, uh, as it were, being fact-checked information, it has dangers that come uh, along with it. Except those dangers, but uh, I don't know, maybe I'm being really naive, just reaching wild conclusions here, but it doesn't seem to me the antidote's working very well. So, I mean, you know, I appreciate this is a counterfactual to some extent and probably unknowable, but if the idea is we're relying on the antidote of genuine information, genuine news, whatever that is, um, to ameliorate the effect of the conspiracy theorising or whatever then that's where I come back to the algorithms and the filter bubbles, right? That, that it doesn't seem that that antidote is reaching the relevant people in the relevant doses to offset the disease. And so I just wonder, you know, in, in the meantime, what we see is a political polarisation that I, for mine, just seems built into the algorithm. And if if that's removed and people are seeking their news diet elsewhere, then maybe maybe you don't get the downside of it. You know, maybe, yes, the conspiratorial stuff continues and those communities still flourish online as they're flourishing anyway. But in the meantime, people might discover news in a more reliable way. I mean, I don't know. Am I being completely quixotic here, Belinda? No, I don't think so. I think you're capturing the nuance because there is a nuance to this. Um, I guess I've, I wanted to add that changing the ratio of news content to uh, junk or Rembrandt to horse on roller skates is just one uh, one aspect of it. Um, ideally, you'd also have regulation in place, uh, which will make Facebook take responsibility for its content. So earlier, Waleed, you were talking about how uh, Facebook doesn't want to be a publisher because it doesn't want to take responsibility for its content. Well, maybe we should be making Facebook take responsibility for the ratio of junk to news and the impact that it has uh, on its audience. But you see, surely there, it's the size that becomes the real problem here. In other words, it's not just this or that poor editorial or governance decision that's being made. It's the fact that this is simply too big to be regulated in any meaningful way. I mean, this is the definition of something being structural, a problem being structural or, or systemic. I mean, I, you know, the very thing that has been so, so lip-smackingly attractive to news organizations, namely the extent of the audience that can be reached by publishing our material on this platform, is the very thing that is part of the problem. Yes. <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> which, which, which raises the question, should we really be wanting, should we really be expecting, and this is my other normative question, should we really be expecting audiences of quote-unquote news products to be as big as they are? Isn't the size mm. of the audience that we've come to expect part of the problem? Anyway, that's, yeah, and that raises interesting things about local news. That's right, and so exactly. You know, and, and that is a dimension uh, we should explore, actually, is because part of the argument here is the reliance on Facebook of smaller news outlets that might be local or they might be tailors of specific communities and so on. 
We probably should consider that at least mm, that's at, right. at some point. Um, if you just joined us, this is The Minefield. Well, Ed Ali, my name's Scott Stevens, my co-host. Our guest today is Belinda Barnett, who's a senior lecturer in media and communications at Swinburne University of Technology in Melbourne. So which thread do you want to pick up first, Scott? Well, well, Belinda, why don't you why don't you go directly from that? I mean, I I, I am aware, I am sort of tuned into these things well enough, and I'm not <laughs> as quixotic, perhaps, uh, that you know, local news organizations, smaller news organizations, really have been adversely affected by this far more, I think, proportionately uh, than say the ABC or the Guardian or or Channel Ten. Um, so yeah. my, I guess my my thinking is if there is some way for local communities to have their news diet locally privileged and Facebook was a good way of doing that rather than everything being centralized, national, global and so forth, there, there I can see real community benefits if there was that kind of privileging of local information. But it's not clear to me that that's what's going on. Well, I guess it depends on how you are using Facebook. But if you have set up a community page or a a group that has uh, certain members in it, then you're distributing that content directly to the people who've liked the page or who've joined the group. And that's something unique to the Facebook platform. It's a benefit of of the Facebook platform. It's so easy to set up a group or so easy to set up a page and to distribute um, information to everybody that you need to get it to. And you'll actually find a lot of local news organisations and also things like charity groups and um, organisations that don't have a lot of money to develop an app, for example, find Facebook very easy to set up and instantly distribute their content. So it, it does have a benefit in, in that sense. And beyond news, right, into um, all kinds of small businesses. I mean, and Google's, in some ways, I mean, it's probably the bigger part of this picture. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know, but it's a, it's a, you know, they're both such structural elements of the economy now. So that all kinds of small businesses, medium-sized businesses, even are so reliant on them. And maybe that's the big question that we should be arriving at here, Scott. Is that this isn't just about news. This is about economic structure, and the problem of effectively leaving what in another era would have been the function played by critical infrastructure or, you know, some kind of essential service in the hand of a a for-profit business that has shown zero civic interest, really, right? Um, And what happens then? And, uh, yeah, that might be the, the economic question of our age in some respects because so much has moved in that sort of direction. It strikes me just thinking about Facebook. If you think about it as a, as a business model or as, you know, a, um, an example of contemporary capitalism, it's, it's like the quintessential, it's the most modern version of it, whereby the money is being made by someone who doesn't provide anything. Hmm. What they provide is a conduit or a platform. So think of like a, an Uber Eats or something like that. They don't produce anything. They don't produce any food. They don't do the work. They don't do the delivery. That's done by an underpaid person. Um, The people who make the money are the people who are producing nothing. And that is effectively a form of rent seeking. Um, And and so if you think of liberal economics as being something that's designed to try to incentivize productivity, this is a very strange situation that we're suddenly in. And maybe what we're seeing now is these sort of weird, ill-conceived attempts to try to deal with the underlying problem, which is an economic model, an evolution in late capitalism that is incapable of being regulated because it's not economic activity in the sense that we've traditionally conceived of it. That's absolutely right, Waleed. And an example I usually give, a a metaphor to explain this new form of capitalism, is that we think of these platforms not as message boards um, or even publishers as traditionally conceived, but it's more like uh, they're mining. So 
They get the data that they're mining from us, which is what they use to sell their product advertising. They get that for free. And then they get on the other side of the equation, the content that they use to attract us to the platform so that they can mine the data. They get that for free as well. So they've, they've got this completely unique and new business model where what they're using to attract us is free and then what they're mining from us is free as well. And when on either side you try to regulate, whether you're regulating for data privacy, they kick back on that. And with this media code legislation, we're trying to get them to pay for the content that they usually get for free and they're kicking back on that. So it's a new model and I don't think governments know how to approach it or to regulate it. It's, it's getting both things for free. Yeah. So what, what should, what's the proper target of the regulation then here? Is it the data? Is it the content? I'm not sure it should be the content. Hmm. I, like, I'm not sure I see the case for it. I, I hear everything you've said about um, media organisations effectively having no choice but to put stuff up there because if they don't, they would have been destroyed in the marketplace, all this sort of stuff. Okay, I get that. I understand that conceptually. But bottom line, it, it's it's a benefit that they are seeking and they offer up their content freely and willingly um, because they want to seek that benefit. They could choose not to seek that benefit and they don't choose that. And they've all made that decision. Whereas the data stuff, it seems to me, that's the stuff that if, if Facebook produces anything, that's what it produces. Yeah. An advertising model and a data accumulation model and maybe a way of aggregating that data. That's it. It seems to me that's the proper target. I I, I, I don't know. I, I'm always weary, wary of being well beyond my depth when I talk about tech stuff because there are only a handful of people in the world that seem to understand it properly and they're the ones making the money, it seems to me. But I, I don't know. Am I missing something here? Scott, what do you reckon? Have I, is this the right question at the very least? Well, I, I mean, it's, it's the question that interests me massively. Uh, I mean, when I was talking before about the separation that existed between, say, advertising content and news content, I mean, what we're seeing now is the blending of those two precisely because the advertising content or the ad advertising interests, I should say, have become, have permeated everything. And by permeating everything, they've become invisible and yet they undergird, they provide the underlying rationale for everything. And so this is the driving force then behind what I was trying to maybe ham-fistedly describe earlier as the fact that Facebook is content agnostic. In, within certain limits, they do not care about the content that appears on Facebook because the status of all content is to be a lure, to be something that is dangled in front of users so that they pay attention for long enough so that their behavior can be turned into data and so that data can then be bundled, packaged and given to advertisers. So the fact that monetary interests, the interests of advertisers undergirds all of the offerings I mean, that raises, and, and, and even for, I mean, I don't want to be speaking out of turn here, but for a public broadcaster like the ABC, I don't understand how we get around the moral complicity that is involved in that kind of bargain, knowing that we are participating in economic interests, knowing that we are participating in the mining and the bundling of user behaviors and the, sh the, the, the selling them off then to advertisers. I, I don't understand how we've made morally, morally speaking peace with that kind of decision, but the fact that it permeates everything means that it's inescapable if we want to continue to throw our lot in with Facebook. Well, you don't have a lot of choice, do you? There's only a few options. You can... You can either be on these platforms or you can make the conscious decision not to be on them and perhaps, as Sarah Hansen-Young has suggested, go off and build a public search engine or uh, a public social network that is not harvesting your data. But it's not really possible to be on the platform and participating in this new economy um, that we have. And still step back and say, I disagree with it. Yeah. The ABC example is a really interesting one though, I think, because the point of a public broadcaster is surely to be freed of the commercial imperatives to chase ratings, eyeballs, whatever that's phrase right. you want to use. So 
arguably their incentive to do so should have been, should I say their, our incentive to do so, should have been less than the other media organisations. That's one. And two is, would the ABC have any business being part of this code? Why should the ABC be getting paid for its content when its funding source, it hasn't lost advertisers mm, in right. the way that the other media organisations that are pushing this have. Its funding source comes direct from government. Now, obviously, that's shrinking and you can have a whole argument about government funding and all that sort of stuff. But nonetheless, as a question of mechanism, that is the mechanism. The ABC doesn't normally charge for its content. That's not the way it works. It charges for some merchandise it produces occasionally. It'll sell the odd DVD uh, box set or something of, of its content, but it... It operates, operates something like a public utility, doesn't it? Hmm. it? It provides the content for the public good. That, that That's right. But I think, Walid, and I'm, I'd be interested in what you think about this, Belinda. I think this actually points to, again, one of the deeper – we keep saying the deeper underlying issues. Facebook is the context. I mean, Facebook is the public. And I, I would imagine that, that you know – uh, one of the other obligations that a public broadcaster has is to make its content freely available to the public wherever that public is meant to be found. So this could be regarded as, if you like, a competing or a countervailing or an ameliorating even uh, obligation uh, that it that it has. So if Facebook is where the public is to be found, and if Facebook, if you like, has become, if you, to put it this way, almost a kind of civic ambience, this is the atmosphere, this is the climate, this is the air in which the media must operate, then it means that the ABC, which has no commercial imperative, has to produce content that competes with media content that does have a commercial imperative, that is competing for eyes and for attention, and if it then has that uh, that if it's then competing in the same space, then it has to compete in a manner of like for like, kind for kind, which means that it has to increasingly resemble the sort of content that is available on commercially interested media platforms. And that's where I think, again, that's one of the other problems here. It's, in, it's impossible to differentiate one's news content when everything is competing more or less in the same space. Right. And we, I'd also point out that if the ABC were not part of this code, I think I've been saying this for a while now, the ABC and SBS were not part of this code, it would actually be destructive to the interests of the other media organisations to receive payment for their content. So what I mean is if Google and Facebook could get your content for free, why would they go somewhere else to pay for it? Right. So the, the ABC and SBS would just be pumped out via these um, yeah, platforms. Yeah, that's right, which I'm sure would be fantastic for you, but it would also, uh, it, it would go against the interests of the other um, organisations. So I think that's probably part of the reason that you were brought into the code yeah. uh, as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Hmm. Scott, I think what we've gotten to here is... That the problem is so thorny and it has it hooks it has its hooks so deeply into our body politic, our public life, our informational landscape that there is simply it's too late. Mm. I, I don't see the extrication happening. Yes, you can allow these companies to strike these deals and now they will. It's going to fix nothing really. It's going to send a few more dollars the way of probably the big news organisations and that'll be that. Yeah, I think that's probably Good. right. Um, Good. But finish with that. No, that's it. You get nothing more. You just yeah. have to agree and that's it. Um, mainly because I'm being told we have to go. Like I said, that, that little window for non-pragmatic reflection, uh, it opened suddenly and it's closing just as and rapidly. It, it slammed shut, yeah. Belinda, thank you. It's been great to have you on the show. I appreciate you making yourself available. Um, Belinda Barnett, Senior Lecturer in Media and Communications at Swinburne University of Technology. I guess for this week's edition of The Minefield, we're done for this week. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.